1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, with God's help, we'll be looking at verses 17 through 34 this afternoon. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. So as many of you know, we've been um, taking a specific look at the Lord's Supper for the past few weeks. This is a, the third sermon in a um, four-part series on the Lord's Supper. So as we as Christ's Covenant Church prepare to take the Lord's Supper for the first time as a church, it's good for us to stop and think for some time about what Jesus has actually given us in the Lord's Supper as a sacrament and why it's so important and why it's so beneficial to us as Christians uh, to partake of the sacrament. And so we started off looking at um, what is the purpose of the sacrament, and we looked at Uh, What is the presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper? And then today we'll be looking at who can participate and how we can protect uh, the table. Very important for us as Christians to understand these things. And so we're turning now to a great teaching on the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. But I want to ask you a question before we actually read the text. Question is, how... How do you heal an unhealthy church? How do you heal a church that's sick with conflict? Or how do you treat a church that is infected with moral compromise? How do you boost a church's health so that the gospel is clearly seen and proclaimed and that Christ is known? How do you ensure that his name is honored and not defiled, compromised with the world? It's questions like this that the Apostle Paul is trying to answer in this letter to the Corinthians. Because as you may know, this church in Corinth was not a healthy church. Paul helped to plant this church or establish it, but it did not grow the way he would have liked. This church is not what you might call a model church. Now, Paul loved it dearly but it was clearly in in need of a lot of help. The Corinthian church had two main problems. One is it was a church mired in conflict. Divisions over which leader to follow, how to use spiritual gifts, divisions between rich and poor in the church. But it was also a church mired in compromise with the world. Sexual immorality in the church, including incest, pagan marriage practices, uh, worship at pagan feasts was tolerated. All of these things combining to create a very unhealthy church life and including distorted worship practices. And so when we get to chapter 11 here, it's helpful to know that. And Paul's leading into that situation there. And as he's going to turn to the Lord's Supper and seeing, analyzing how the Corinthians are having a very unhealthy situation of conflict and compromise with the world, Paul wants to ensure that they protect the supper as a visible sign of the gospel. Paul is highlighting here that the visible sign and seal of the gospel that Christ has gifted to his church, the Lord's Supper, is such a fundamental part of church life that it is crucial to understand how Christians can participate in the supper and why they must protect it. So this is some of the things that we're going to be looking at as we Uh, explore this passage in 1 Corinthians 11. So I want to encourage you now uh, to follow along with me as we read from this text. 1 Corinthians 11, starting at verse 17. Hear the word of the Lord. 
Paul writes, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. And praise God for his holy word. Well, friends, as I've said already, um, this is not the sort of normal preaching series at Christ's Covenant when we typically... Uh, hear God's word, we're hearing a message, expository message through a book of the Bible, sort of verse by verse, chapter by chapter. It's how we normally do it here, but this series has been a little bit more topical. And so um, this text that we have in front of us today, the point is not to exposit every single verse. There might be some questions left unanswered for you this afternoon. Happy to talk about those after the service, of course. But this text is to help us prepare to take the supper, as I said, as a church for the first time. And central to our worship of God, our unity with believers, our witness to the world, is how we participate in and protect the Lord's Supper. That's, I think, what Paul is getting at here. That's central to the gospel connection is partaking in the visible gospel, the Lord's Supper a sign and seal of God's gospel promises. It should be a testimony of our union with Christ and to each other. Here, Paul is really admonishing the Corinthians to reform their worship practices, especially their practice of the supper. And there's several reasons for that. He wants to protect their fellowship as a unity of believers. He wants to protect their witness to the world, protect themselves from God's judgment, and ultimately to give glory to God and the gospel. So church, this is the main thing that I want us to take away 
this afternoon. If you truly care about God's glory, his church, its witness, then you must take care how you participate in and protect the Lord's Supper. If you truly care about God's glory, his church, its witness, then you must take care how you participate in and protect the Lord's Supper. So you see in your handout, I have three main points uh, that I want to explore looking at this passage. The first thing that we need to ask is, well, who may participate at the table, the supper? I wonder if you've ever been in a church service and you've heard words like this when the Lord's Supper is celebrated. pastor may say, you know, all who are baptized believers in good standing at a local church may partake of the supper. Maybe you've heard something like that before. But I wonder if you've ever stopped and thought about what does that mean and why do we say that? Um, my guess is, is that many people, some Christians anyway, or some visitors, hear those words and it just sort of floats by without much thought. Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you several reasons. We're going to unpack exactly who can participate. We're going to look at that sometimes word by word or phrase by phrase. And I'm going to give you several things, about five things, five criteria of who can participate in the Lord's Supper. And the first might be kind of obvious, but it's believers. Who can participate in the Lord's Supper? It's believers, it's Christians. You need to be a Christian. You need to affirm the basics of Christian doctrine to believe or receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It should be obvious, but I am surprised how many evangelical churches sort of miss that when it comes to administering the Lord's Supper and not really having any mechanism in place to make sure it is an actual believer who is partaking of the supper. But let's make it explicit here. Because Jesus, when he institutes the supper here in 1 Corinthians 11, notice who he gives it to. Jesus gives a supper to believers, right? To his disciples. He doesn't just hand it out to anybody. But when he first institutes the supper in verses 23 and 25 here, he says, gives it to his disciples and says, this is my body, which is given for you, disciples of Jesus. Which is given for you, those for whom... Christ goes to the cross. The supper is for believers, for Christians. And that makes sense to us because if the supper is a visible sign, as we've seen before in earlier sermons, the supper is a visible sign. It's a confirmation of union with Christ. So if someone has no union with Christ by faith, then why would they take the supper? And in one sense, it's of no use. It's sort of like... uh, the sun to a blind person, sort of almost no use, or shouting into the ear of a deaf person, right? There's almost nothing that they can get out of it. Well, spiritually, if someone's not united to Christ by faith, then the Lord's Supper has really no benefit to them. In fact, it could bring God's judgment, as Paul says later on in this passage. People who do not repent of their sin and confess faith in Christ We don't even admit them into church membership. So why would we welcome them to the table, which is a sign of union with Christ? Now, this, as I've said before, it does not mean that a Christian needs to have full assurance of faith coming to the Lord's table. Perfection of faith and life is not required. Perfect spiritual health 
You don't need to have perfect spiritual health to come to the Lord's table. It's not perfect faith that's necessary, but it is the presence of faith that is necessary to come to the table, no matter how weak it is. Medicine is not for the healthy, it's for the sick, the weak. Food is for the hungry. So sin should not hinder you, believer, from coming to the table. Hunger and thirst for Christ and his righteousness should compel you to come to the table. And if you doubt, if you doubt that Christ is yours by faith, if you doubt that today, then put that question out of your mind right now in the sense that today rest and receive Christ. Don't struggle with that question. Resolve today to be united to Christ by faith, to receive his righteousness. Take Christ to be yours, holy, only, and forever today. Because to participate at a table, trust in Christ alone for salvation is required. That's the first criteria for who can participate at the, at the table. But that's not all. The Bible also teaches that we need to be baptized believers. It's the second thing. Someone who claims to be a Christian should also readily agree or assent to wanting to obey all that Christ taught. This is why a person is baptized. This is one reason why. Because baptism is a sign of submission to Christ's commands, his lordship. And it's Christ himself who said, who commanded his disciples in Matthew 28, to go, therefore, and, do all and, make nations, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. One reason we baptize, among many, is because we want to obey Jesus' commands. So to be a Christian means to live under his reign and authority, but to refuse Christian baptism is to reject Christ's own teachings. So a disobedient person, someone who does that, who rejects Christ, is therefore not welcome at his table. Someone who has been baptized is submitting, in part at least, to Christ's teachings. The baptism is also, again, there's many signs, symbols in baptism, but baptism is also a sign of initiation into the covenant community, belonging to Christ's spiritual family. When you're baptized, it means Christ has marked you with his name and you're a part of God's family. So just as circumcision in the Old Testament was a physical sign of God's promises on his covenant people, so too in the New Testament, we have a sign that God has given to us to assure us of his covenant blessings. So we don't, we don't practice the old covenant sign anymore, but now we practice the new covenant sign of baptism, which is a better, more fuller, complete sign. But it is a sign of initiation into the covenant community. And we see this in first, excuse me, Colossians 2, for example. And Paul says baptism has replaced circumcision as a covenant sign. But we also see it in the New Testament church. Let me give you just one example. Acts chapter 2, Peter's sermon at Pentecost. When they ask uh, what must they do to be saved, the, the crowd asks that. Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and all who are far off, 
everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And then it says this, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So added to what? To the church, to the covenant community. Now, baptism, at least, carries these symbols of being initiated into the covenant community and submitting to Christ's lordship. So here, when we read this text, it shows that these baptized believers join themselves to the covenant community. It also shows that there is a difference between baptism and the Lord's Supper. Lord's Supper is a gift of ongoing communion and fellowship with God. Baptism is the rite of initiation. So if someone says that I'm a baptized believer, or if someone says that they're a Christian, that's good. But before someone comes to the supper, we also want to confirm that they are obeying God's commands by being baptized as a sign of their repentance and faith and a sign of initiation into the covenant community. So if they haven't received that baptism, they're not obeying Christ's command and therefore not eligible to receive the covenant blessing of the supper. That's the second criteria that we need to understand. But third, we also need to understand the supper is for baptized professing believers. Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 20 or 1 Corinthians 11 verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. See, the supper is a, it's a sort of a visible, tangible act of proclamation of faith. Union with Christ, union with other believers, fellowship with other believers, public declaration of the gospel. So if someone has never publicly professed faith, then the supper as a proclamation doesn't make any sense for that person. It's only when you publicly proclaim your faith that you can share in this proclamation that takes place at the supper. A public profession of faith is necessary for anybody who does call themselves a Christian. The Bible doesn't have a normal category for someone who's a secret Christian, for someone who hides away as a Christian. That's not a normal category. The normal category is that someone is going to publicly profess faith. Indeed, that's what Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, where he says a public profession of faith is necessary. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your hearts that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So if you're to take the supper, you must first make a public profession of faith in the church. This is also why as Presbyterians are Reformed, we do not allow our baptized children to come to the table. So make that clear. Some people have this misunderstanding about Presbyterians and Reformed types. So you baptize your kids, does that mean you allow them to take the supper too? No, because we don't assume our kids are regenerated, that they're born again simply because they've been baptized. In obedience to God's word, we baptize, but we also expect that if they're truly regenerate, truly changed, they will grow up at the right time to make a public profession of faith and claim the covenant blessings that God has given to them. This makes sense, especially in the context of this passage. Because if you look again at verses 27 through 29, Paul goes on to say this. He says, Whoever, therefore, 
eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now there's a lot we can unpack there, and Lord willing, next week we'll talk more about it. But my point is, we don't allow just baptize anybody, baptize children, especially because children are unable to sort of meet this requirement that Paul's laid out here of discernment, discerning the body. That takes a certain wisdom, it takes a certain knowledge or mental capacity to be able to come to the depths of your sin and also to analyze your relationship with other believers and your relationship to God. It's a very mature thing, you could say. And so Paul's not saying any baptized believer can take, but someone who is able to examine themselves, someone who's able to understand what the Lord's death means, what it means for them, search their lives for sin. So a two-year-old who's been baptized can't do that, obviously, and therefore we don't give supper to a baptized two-year-old, for example. A person needs to be a baptized believer who's mature enough, an age of discernment, to make a credible profession of faith. That's the third criteria. Let's move on to number four. We also expect baptized believers will be members in a local church. Members in a local church. If you notice this in the passage here, Paul is assuming this to be the case. Those who take the supper in Corinth are members of that church. Just notice, as you scan your eyes on this passage, Paul mentions the church body in some way. He says in verse 18, when you come together as a church. Verse um, 20, when you come together, again, church implied. Verse 29, you are part of a body. Uh, Verse 33, when you come together, again, implying the church. Verse 34, when you come together, again, implying the church. You just notice several times in this passage, Paul is assuming this unity of believers in a body. Not only here, but throughout this letter of 1 Corinthians, you can see how covenanting or committing to a local church is normative for the Christian life. Earlier in this letter, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is going to exhort this congregation. He's going to admonish them because they have someone in the church who's living in open sin. He's going to say, you need to do something about that. This person is committing sexual immorality openly, and you're tolerating it. And Paul's response is, you need to purge that person from the body. You need to expel them. Well, friends, you can't expel somebody from something they don't already belong to in some way, right? So church membership is assumed here in 1 Corinthians, a system, some kind of system, by which people commit themselves to other Christians, saying, I will open myself up to the discipleship, to the love of the body. And if I'm out of step in some way, then I acknowledge the church needs to step in and take charge. I hope you can see how these qualifications build on each other. Because it's quite natural that if a person who believes in Jesus is going to obey his command to be baptized, and someone who... Okay. You okay? 
Okay, that's okay. No, it's okay. That's okay. Everybody, you're okay? Okay, no problem, no problem. Yeah. It's okay. All wheels on the ground, okay? No two wheels back there. Well, I want us to see here that uh, it's, it's normative. It's just natural to see this progression of believing in Jesus, submitting to his commands, being baptized, belonging to his body. If, we're, if Jesus is with his church, if he's the head of the church, then we want to be where he is as his body. It makes sense to us when we think about it because in our normal lives, I don't just walk off the street into a gym and expect to be able to use all the equipment without buying a membership. Or I don't walk into the, my local bank and expect to withdraw money if I don't have an account there. Or I don't fly to another country and land there and expect I can just vote in the local elections just because I'm there. Right? We don't expect that we just assume these privileges in other areas of our lives. Why would we assume someone just walking into the church would be able to take advantage, so to speak, of the blessings of being united with Christ? It's not the same but we shouldn't expect that in the church either because the Lord's Supper is for Christ gathered people, people who have been committed to a visible covenant community and professed faith in Christ. So friends, again, this is why we as a church have not taken the supper yet because we need some sort of system in place to understand, to analyze, is this person a Christian? Do they actually understand the doctrines of faith? Is this person baptized? Are they a member of a local church? And if we're taking it as a church, committing to each other, then we need to have some system to actually covenant with each other to make those promises that we're going to love each other well and that we're going to have discipleship, a meaningful discipleship with each other. We haven't had this mechanism in place until now, and that's why we've waited to take the supper to honor these biblical um, teachings on what it means to observe the supper in a worthy manner. We're working our way towards that. We also need to understand one more criteria if we're to get there. The fifth thing we need to understand is that to take the supper, not only a baptized, professing believer, member in a church, but member in good standing. Member in good standing at a local church. So by good standing... I mean a life that's lived in line with Christ's teaching. I mean not under church discipline. I mean not living in open, unrepentant, obvious sin that brings shame on Christ and his church. Not saying that someone has to be a perfect Christian in order to be a part of the church or to take the Lord's Supper. There are no perfect Christians on this side of heaven. It's not a criteria that only perfect Christians take the Supper, but the Supper is not for baptized professing believers who are members of a church but living in open, unrepentant sin that disrupts the fellowship. So notice I said unrepentant and open sin. Right? We all sin every single day. It doesn't disqualify you necessarily from the table. Jesus says the table is for the weak, those who are sinners. Those who are sorry for their sin can come just because you have sin, like, I'm not going to bar you from the table because you stole a cookie from the cookie jar uh, earlier in the week or something like that. We're talking about someone who makes sin a recognizable part of their lives and who has no shame over it. Somebody who um, 
no desire to change even when they're confronted over their sin. Jesus marks out this process in Matthew 18. Someone who is in sin is being confronted by two or three people in the church, still doesn't change, goes before the church, still not listening to the teaching of the church and living in open sin where people know about it. That person is not eligible to take the supper. What does that also look like in this passage or in this book? You know, from 1 Corinthians 5, I already mentioned it earlier, that there is a sinner in this church. There's lots of sinners in that church, but there's one who's living in open, unrepentant sin, a man who's has sexual relations with his mother-in-law. And Paul says, you guys need to do something about that. Everybody knows about it. It's public sin. And Paul even says it's such a heinous sin that it makes the pagans cringe. It's not even acts that the unbelievers around them would do. And Paul's point is, Christians can so profane the Lord's Supper that it's not even a sacrament anymore. They can be so tolerant of unrepentant open sin that it's no longer Christ and the Supper. It's no longer a means of grace. And so Paul recognizes the authority to exclude unrepentant sinners like that. He says, purge the evil person from among you in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 13. Friends, go back to our gym, bank, and citizenship illustration. You think if, if I have a membership to a gym... Even if I hold an account at my local bank, even if I'm a citizen of, that, of a country, I can lose those privileges, right, if I'm acting irresponsibly. If I repeatedly trash my gym, steal equipment, they're going to revoke my membership. If I'm going to overdraft money from my bank account, they're going to freeze that account until I put more money in there. If I commit a crime in my country, they're going to revoke my citizenship privileges, voting, and whatnot. So friends in the churches as well, even more so in a much greater way, uh, we have a system in place uh, to revoke the supper if someone is living in open, unrepentant sin. So unrepentant sinners who persist in that are not seen as members of the church, in fact, at some point, and they're not admitted to the table. So again, it's not saying that if someone's a sinner, they can't come to the table. Supper is for the weak in faith, but it does mean that those who are unrepentant are not welcome at the table. So friends, I want to be clear with that, about this. If I sound repetitive, well, that's on purpose. Once we start taking the supper here, Lord willing soon, if you're not a member in a faithful local church, in a meaningful way, you will not be allowed to take the supper. That's going to be clear. I'm saying it to you. I've said it before, but I'll say it again clearly right now. You need to be a member in a local church. And if that's not this church, it needs to be another church nearby of same faith and practice. These are the criteria as laid out in Scripture and as we'll practice here. We need to understand that it's important. We need to understand what's at stake. And that's the second main thing that I want us to see here. Let's move a little more quickly through. What's at stake here, though? Why is this so important? Why do we spend four weeks just talking about the Lord's Supper? Well, here's why. Here's what's at stake. Number one, the unity of the church is at stake. Friends, if we just allow anybody to come to the table, not examine, are they a Christian? Are they obedient to Jesus' command? Are they living a repentant life? 
If we allow this type of person to come to the table, it dilutes what we believe as Christians. And we're not unifying then around the gospel. We're not unifying around Christ and what he's called us to do and live. It's unifying around something else. And it's distorting the gospel message. If the, if the supper is a visible sign of the gospel, then we need to uphold what we're unified by in that gospel. And so we need to understand that the table is a sign of our unity of believers. We risk disunity in the church if we do not uphold these biblical criteria. People will become confused about what it means to be a Christian and what the gospel is. We protect the table in this way and protect the unity of the church by knowing who can participate and who has authority to grant permission to the table. Number two, the purity of the church is at stake. It's kind of similar to the, to the first thing in here, but it's a little bit different. If we leave this table unchecked, if we don't protect the table in any meaningful way, allowing open and unrepentant sinners to the table, it has ramifications. We see that in the text here in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul says to not protect the table allows for division at the table, threatens the purity. Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, verse 22, do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. As we threaten the purity of the church, we humiliate others and we despise God's church if we do not protect the table in a meaningful way. Paul's saying you can so corrupt the sacrament, so distort the purity of the church that it's not even a sacrament anymore. But also, I mean, the purity of the church is at stake. The more we compromise with the world, the more we lose the purity of the church. Paul warns again of this in 1 Corinthians 5, as I said, with a person who's purged from the midst, from their midst. Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 5, if you're to flip back, he says, you must purge this person, otherwise they'll become like leaven in the bread. You guys know what leaven is, right? Leaven permeates throughout the whole bread. It's what makes it rise It spreads throughout the entire dough. Well, if we leave unrepentant sinners in the church as if they're just normal Christians, Paul is saying that'll spread through the church in such a way, infect it will infect other people. So the purity of the church is at stake when we protect the supper because we don't want to spread sin in the church. We want to make sure that we keep unrepentant sin. We check it so that Christ and his church is pure of polluting sin. But also, number three, what's at stake? Our witness to the world is at stake. I mean, Paul says here, even the pagans cringed at this sexual immorality that was taking place in the church. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1, that that sort of sexual immorality isn't even tolerated among the pagans. What have you done allowing it in the church? And you can imagine what those people outside the church might have been thinking as they looked at what was going on in the Corinthian church. They're saying, well, if that's what a Christian is, if a Christian is no different than me or even worse than me, then why do I need this Jesus guy? Now, if that person doesn't really believe in sin or just they can practice sin and there's no, you know, no effect on their life, then why can't I do that? 
It harms the gospel message that the Corinthians might have been trying to proclaim to the people around them. Because with their mouths, they might have said one thing, but in their lives, they were proclaiming another thing. So what's at stake in our protecting of the table is our witness to the world of showing it is a visible gospel. And we maintain that, our practice of it, and when people see how we live our lives as Christians. And then number four, what's at stake? Protection from God's judgment is at stake. Notice Paul gives this solemn warning in verse 29 against anyone who does not repent of sin, against those who do not put their trust in the Lord Jesus, who have no desire to live a godly life. They are not to take the supper. He says, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Verse 29. As you understand, we kindle God's wrath against us when we do not partake in a worthy manner. In fact, it can even lead to God's punishment on an unworthy or unrepentant person, even upon the entire church. That's why Paul says, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Friends, not all illnesses in your life are the result of sin. That's not what Paul's saying here. But sinful actions can lead to sickness and even death. God is not going to tolerate profanation of his church and the abuse of worship of him in the church. So if we're desire, if we're desire that Christ's covenant be a healthy church, a gospel preaching church, pure church as much as we can in this, this side of heaven, then we need to pursue purity and unity. We need to protect our witness. We need to uphold the supper as Jesus Christ has given it to us. This is what is at stake. Our unity, our purity, our witness, and even protection from God's judgment. I hope that's clear. Something else that we need to touch on here as we move into the third main point. If all these things are true, we also need to ask, who permits people to the table? Now, I wonder if you hear that question and you think it's strange. What I'm about to say next might be new for some of you. If you have questions about this, I want to say right now, talk to me after the service. Um, Find a time to get coffee with me, whatever it is. But let me be clear here. We need to understand who it is that actually has the authority to permit people to come to the table. Because someone might read or think about these five criteria about who can participate. And they might think, well, if I meet those criteria, then don't I get to decide if I take the supper? And friends, that's not actually, I believe, what the Bible teaches. That is how most Christians think of the supper, that the authority lies with the individual person sitting in the chair. But that's not what I believe is the model in Scripture. The authority for partaking of the supper, who gives permission does not lie with the individual person. It lies with the elders of the church, what we call the session. The session is the elders who are ordained by Christ, who have been called by him to be the officers of his church, the, govern- the governors of his church, so to speak. 
Jesus has instituted his church, and with that, he's gifted to his church church officers. And these officers, elders, have a responsibility. They're tasked with ruling. Hebrews 13, verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. 1 Timothy 5, 17, Let the elders who rule well be considered, of, be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. 1 Peter 5 says, Elders exercise oversight. And 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1 says, Elders steward the mysteries of God. Part of what it means to steward the mysteries of God is to be caretakers, as it were, of the word and sacrament. This is the job of the elders. So they have the responsibility. We as elders have the responsibility to lead well, to shepherd well, to rule well, and to keep watch of the church by ensuring the table is partaken of in a worthy manner as far as we can. Now, this is not to be tyrannical or overbearing or anything like that. Um, Far from it. Sin is tyrannical and overbearing. Sin is enslaving. Sin is deceptive. Elders in the church want to keep you from that. And they want to keep, we want to keep other people from sin in the church. One of the ways that we do that, one of the ways that I do that as your pastor, I want to protect you, is to protect the table so that we do not invite God's judgment upon ourselves. To keep the church pure, unified, our witness pure. So as we will practice it in this church, we will practice what is called session-controlled communion. It has a sort of, I don't know, sort of a strong sound to it, but it really is coming out of an act of love. And what it really means is for someone to partake of the supper at this church, if you're not a member of this church, if you invite somebody, a friend of yours, a visitor to this church, and they want to take the supper, they must first talk with an elder, either myself or Ryan, as a, as a uh, prospective elder, we'll have a short talk with them to make sure that they meet these criteria. And if they do, then they'll be welcome at the table. But this is a practice that we believe is biblical, and it's a practice that in the Reformed Church and Presbyterian Church has been practiced for some time. And as I said, it's all because of those things that are at stake when we practice the table. Friends, if you're, like I said, if you're a member in good standing here at this church, you will have permission to take the supper already. But let's be clear again, if someone's visiting, bring a visitor, they must first be member, uh, interviewed by a member of the session or one of the elders. So given, given this awesome potential of communion with Christ within the supper, we do need to take the matter of right participation seriously. Because a truly born-again Christian cannot think of partaking of the sacred meal without asking, what does God require of me? The church family, if you do truly care about that, if you truly care about God's glory, his church, his witness, then you must take care about how you participate in and protect the Lord's Supper. As we close go with this reminder that the Lord's Supper is a vision of God's presence with us. It's a vision of his dining with us, symbolic of him being present in fellowship with us, our friendship with Jesus through faith. 
The Supper is a joyful celebration. Joyful celebration of salvation in Christ. And when we take the Supper, all these strands come together in one picture that really gives life to Jesus' words that we heard earlier in Revelation 3, verse 20, when Christ is standing at the door of a person's heart and invites him in and says, Come, eat with me, or as the older translation put it, sup with me. He'll sup with anyone who opens the door. That's a good promise. And Christ will have fellowship with you if you're a born-again Christian who's accepted Christ. My friends, these are important things for us to think about, especially as we desire to be a healthy gospel-preaching church. So let's go to God now and ask that he'd help us to think upon these things and what it means to partake of the supper. Please pray with me.